it's the 7th of September and you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Vaik, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 27th episode. A lot has been going on lately on the political front in the region. Southeast Asian governments and opposition parties have been jockeying for their population support and you see it everywhere. They're dealing with the pandemic and associated economic crisis. They're also grappling with intensifying China-US tension. To feel the political pulse of the region, we have with us today the ever erudite Hans Verins. Hans is the founder and managing partner of Verins and Partners, a leading government affairs, public policy, and political risk analysis firm focusing on Southeast Asia. It is headquartered in Singapore and has more than 90 staff and 30 senior counselors around ASEAN. Hans, it's a real pleasure to welcome you on Kopi Time. Most uh, welcome, Tamur. Great, great honor to be uh, to be honored. Uh, thank you. Uh, look, I just made some brief remarks about your firm, uh, but will you share with us a bit more about Verins and Partners? Uh, what would you like me to tell? I think you summarized it very well. So we focused on ASEAN, at headquarters in Singapore, eight offices in all the major capitals around ASEAN, and our focus really is on. Uh, government affairs, helping our clients understand uh, government policies and actually effectively work with policymakers around the region. That's often a bigger challenge than many people uh, think it is. This is a very complex and very diverse uh, region. So many uh, clients need, need a lot of help uh, to, uh, to navigate that. How is doing this type of work affected by the pandemic, Hans? Oh, yeah, that's, it is a very interesting question, Tamur, quite a bit, because what was really important is, uh, because our clients can't fly, fortunately, most governments are working from their offices again, uh, with the exception of the Philippines and Indonesia to some extent, so uh, we can meet, and it's very important to, now we can leverage really the relations we have built over many years, with, uh, with the governments and uh, we can meet them and, and be an effective back channel for our clients and at the right moment bring the, our clients in on a the, on the Zoom call with the governments. It actually has been interesting to see how willing and how open governments have been about this and how, to what extent they have embracing Zoom uh, meet and what you have. If you would have asked me that uh, six months ago, I said I would have said, no, no, they're not going to do this. They're not even reading their email. But uh, they also uh, understand the importance. Life is moving on, and they also uh, they also uh, need these uh, these the relationships with, with these investors in their country. Among the countries that you cover in ASEAN, which government has been most uh, digital friendly? And which civil society is most digital friendly? Uh, most. Uh, yeah, I mean, probably, probably Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, 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 uh, government. Uh, civil society most. Oof, I wouldn't know. But they, 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 most of them have been. It, it actually, uh, I'm also surprised by Indonesia and the Philippines, even Myanmar. All have been trying to embrace this, and all actually have, have reached out. They need the help of tech companies to actually do that with them. And not just for the government, but also, for, for example, 
How do you put your education system online? So these are major challenges these governments face and they have been working hard to, to address them. In my personal experience, Hans, I and mean, this is just my perspective, is that in the last few years, I've seen the government of Indonesia particularly keen to engage investors. And as we went through the lockdown, it seemed to me they were also the one who very aggressively sort of transitioned to becoming available via Zoom and Skype. But that could be just my bias. Yeah, I mean, but I think it also depends on which 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 part of the government you're talking to. I, I assume if you're talking to the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank, I mean, those are really the, uh, the elite parts of the Indonesian government. If you deal with the Ministry of Agriculture and Health, it's often much more challenging. In, in, but what is true is that Indonesia is really tries to understand why it keeps missing out on on uh, on investments, and it's it's trying to address that. But I think I mean that's the first step, and Jokowi is really really keen to attract more foreign direct investments and bring more foreign know-how to the country. Uh, but I'm afraid that uh, the vested interests are very strong, and yeah, I mean did. did it, yeah, hopefully Indonesia will change, but the ability of Jokowi to make that happen is just uh, limited, I'm afraid. Right. We will talk in detail about Indonesia a little later in the podcast, but I'd like to start our tour of ASEAN with you, Hans, uh, perhaps with our home base of Singapore. We recently yeah. had an historic election. The economy is struggling under the COVID-19 related collapse in travel and tourism. And there's also significant continued restriction on domestic activities. And you know, issues related to China-US strife are not invisible for Singapore. They're also very much in the picture. So why don't you yeah. help us construct the outlook of Singapore around these various uh, cross currents? Well, it's complex uh, because it's, uh, it's, 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 Singapore faces major political, economic, social, social and geopolitical challenges. Uh, first of all, political. I mean, we've, we've seen quite a bruising election and we're going to see the handover uh, to a new generation of leaders. But uh, and it will be then the end, if we have a new prime minister, it will be the end of the Lee uh, era in, uh, in Singapore to some extent. But uh, I'm not sure that good technocrats make uh, good political leaders. So we have to see. And we have to see, I mean, for any political party that it has been in power for more than 50 years, which is, of course, is remarkable, the major challenge is to keep renewing yourself. And, uh, and I think the Singaporeans clearly want, uh, as far as I can see, a more open political environment, leadership, and that would require a somewhat different style of governing by the PAP, and we have to see if it's able and willing uh, to do that. The social economic challenge is that, I mean, Singapore as a regional economic hub, a regional surface center, of course, is uniquely vulnerable to the consequences of, uh, of COVID-19. I mean, the biggest airport, the airport is, in very few people are flying, hotels are empty, no conferences, investors can't visit. This all has to change. This can't go on for too long. And we have virtually no cases, but many people are still sitting at home in, the, in Singapore. This has to change. And I think, I'm not sure it will, it can't wait for, for a vaccine. 
I think soon, hopefully, we'll have a very rapid test. And I know several U.S. pharmaceutical companies already are bringing this to the market, where you know within 50 minutes if, you, if you're either positive or negative. And that will allow traveling. And also traveling to or from countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, that where it will take quite a long time to bring COVID-19 under control. I think that is very important for the future of, uh, of Singapore. Uh, socially, I mean, I mean as, a, as a result of COVID, uh, there is strong demand that the government takes care of Singaporeans. And that, and that means somewhat more populist policies. It will be somewhat more difficult for foreigners there are already inform, informal quotas, so I'm not too worried about that. And I think the Singapore government also has to be seen to be taking care of Singaporeans, especially in an environment where there are no, where the social security net is weak and there are no unemployment benefits. Finally, geopolitically, I mean, Singapore is really between the US and China and it doesn't and it doesn't want to have to choose and it will it, it, this is a delicate balance especially with an increasingly aggressive I mean the word is assertive I think the word is aggressive China India and the South China Sea and of course Singapore is the only majority Chinese governed country in the world Chinese perhaps falsely is expecting that it should fall into line. And, and at the same time, I'm not sure to what extent the US under Trump is a, is a reliable partner. So I think this is a very uh, difficult environment for the government and the political leaders in Singapore to navigate. Sure. Uh, but Hans, uh, one question, as you correctly say, that there is an imperative to get things going again in a country that is so dependent on trade and tourism and travel. But yeah. the COVID outcome is so divergent between Singapore versus Malaysia versus Indonesia that unless we are on some sort of a synchronous mode, uh, that we're all coming out of the pandemic at the same time, how will Singapore manage to open itself up to uh, travel and work from Indonesia, Malaysia. I mean, are you seeing creative, out-of-the-box solutions uh, that are being considered? Yes, uh, I think there was discussion over lunch today with representative of a major pharmaceutical company, uh, and they just launched uh, a test uh, that basically gives you 98% certainty within 50 minutes if you are positive or negative, and that's the way to go. We're going to have lots of tests, and everybody who will come to Singapore will have to be tested and we will know within 15 minutes if that person can either have COVID or doesn't have it. I think that's the way to go. And, and by having that, you can also open up travel to countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, and, uh, and India, where it will take a long time, perhaps even many years, before they, they have COVID fully under control. Are policymakers in Singapore and elsewhere already trying to figure out the post-vaccine world that, you know, if you and I have been vaccinated, are they thinking about giving us some sort of a digital clean bill of health, which will allow us to travel, or that's still very much in the theoretical space? I'm not sure. I think that they, we are work, they're working on that, but I'm not clear 
how how advanced the thinking is on uh, on that. Well, perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we need to have a vaccine that is effective before we can, yes. you know, start building those uh, castles. And although the market seems to be very confident that we are just a month or two away from some degree of, you know, definitive uh, announcement from one of the vaccine manufacturers, I think announcement is one thing and making it available for tens, if not hundreds of millions of people is a whole different thing. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to realize this has never happened. That's right. It's never ever happened in the world. That, uh, so it may take quite a while before, I mean, before the whole region will be vaccinated. That may, may, that may, may even take years. So I think people are way too optimistic about, uh, about that solution because, I mean, vaccinating Singapore is one thing, but uh, the whole of Southeast Asia or the whole of Asia, I mean, that, uh, that may take years. Uh, so that's why the future may be more rapid testing than putting our bets on the vaccine. By the way, the vaccine is not there. There has, there's no proven vaccine yet, and we don't know when it will be there. Right. Hans, when we think about so the outlook for Singapore, trade is, of course, a very important part. And for July, we saw 6% year-on-year increase in Singapore's non-oil domestic exports. Today, we saw China's data for the month of August and close to double-digit increase in China's exports. Um, so when you talk to clients, are people getting a bit optimistic about the regional supply chain beginning to hum again and trade routes, which seem to be coming to a standstill a few months ago, are now back in action? Yes, very much so. We see quite a few countries, most countries really, except some extent Indonesia and the Philippines, Southeast Asia, really, uh, really going back to normal. And actually, I'm surprised to see how fast that is, uh, that is all happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. The two exceptions are Indonesia and Philippines. So why don't we talk about our southern neighbor, Indonesia? where as of today, we're in the first week of September, COVID infections are still rising in a rather alarming rate. You had briefly touched upon your view on President Jokowi and his challenges, but here's your chance to elaborate on that. Uh, how tough a calculus does he have on his hands? And I'd like you to comment on both the, the competency and the capability of the Indonesian government. So can we put it in a somewhat broader perspective? Because I mean, what we, what we are seeing in the region is that, 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 the, two, that the Philippines and Indonesia, they really struggle. While mainland Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Cambodia even, and, and Myanmar have had very, very few cases, sometimes even haven't had a single community transmission case in more than 100 days. So Indonesia, the, I mean, there are several problems. The, the effectiveness of the government to control this has been very limited. We've seen chaotic policy policymaking. Uh, we've seen, by the way, we've seen more than 100 doctors uh, have, uh, have, have died as a result of COVID in Indonesia. And it's really not under control. And I think the government also doesn't have the ability to really effectively bring it under control. And actually, it has moved to focus on the economic pain and, and keeping things going and really bringing it under control. By the way, we should also say that I mean, uh, concepts like social distancing are, are difficult to implement in a country like, uh, like Indonesia. So, 
and that as a result of that, we have seen uh, quite a sharp rise in the number of cases in Indonesia. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we saw uh, in the case of India uh, just a few days ago, a really dire GDP out, uh, number for the second quarter of the year. We haven't seen such bad numbers out of Indonesia, uh, perhaps because you're right that, you know, there isn't that much compliance with uh, safe distancing and lockdown measures. So people are still out and about. And it might be, you know, one of those trade-offs between lives and livelihood where the Indonesians have basically decided to lean on the side of lives, uh, which is fine, but that could also mean that this pandemic is not going to go away anytime soon and control measures will remain inadequate. Can Indonesia continue like this? Because this would mean that tourists will not be visiting Indonesia for many, many months. But I mean, so far, Indonesia, uh, sure, it is, it, it is serious, but it is much less serious compared to India. So that is also why it is still able to focus more on the, on the economy. Uh, and hopefully it stays this way. Why exactly that is, uh, we don't know. But, uh, and hopefully Indonesia to some extent will keep riding uh, its luck. And it, it's true. But despite that, indeed, uh, the situation is, is still too serious to allow uh, foreign tourists to visit, so Bali is very, almost uh, shut, shut down. So it has serious implications for the tourism industry, and not just in Indonesia, but all around Southeast Asia. That's right. Um, but Hans, when faced with crises like this, I mean, you know, leadership gets tested. Uh, and uh, one thing that I always say about Indonesia is that you still have many players in the government who are veterans of the 1997 crisis, Sri Mulyani comes to mind. And of, of course, you know, many, many of them have lived through the 2007, 2008 crisis. So just as general crisis response to the public health issue, to the economic crisis, uh, assuaging investor uh, fears and concerns about Indonesia, uh, are the authorities doing a good job in your view? So I think we should make a distinction here between how the ability of government institutions to deal with an economic crisis, as we discussed earlier, the economic institution of Indonesia, Central Bank, Ministry of Finance, very strong, but the health ministry is extremely weak, uh, just like in the Philippines. So the ability to implement policies around the archipelago are just virtually very limited, I would say almost non-existent. That's why there's such a distinction between the two, health policies and economic policies. That's right. Uh, I sometimes wonder, I mean, you mentioned Bali, that even close to Singapore, places like Bintan, also been deeply affected by the lack of tourism from Singapore. And I always wonder whether that could be the first line of opening up where Singapore, Bintan have a green channel and we can take ferries to go there. Um, but, uh, but I suppose the thinking at Jakarta is more about how to sort of take care of Java Island first and then the rest of the country. Um, but since you touched on Philippines, uh, Hanso, let's move there. Uh, again, mm -hmm. the outlook looks very challenging. I mean, we have issues related to remittance-related uh, uncertainty from the Middle East. We have travel and tourism at a standstill. We still have very stringent lockdowns in place. Actually, that's a big contrast between Philippines and Indonesia. The Filipinos have actually embraced the stringent lockdown measures. And unfortunately, despite that, the pandemic is not yet under control. So can President Duterte hold all of these things together? 
Uh, no, clearly not. And I don't, I'm not sure he's even trying. He's not even pretending anymore. I think his only hope, as he keeps on saying, is the vaccine and uh, from China. But it's a bit discouraging to see the lack of leadership uh, from his side. Uh, he really has given up. But at the same time, the economic team, uh, led by the finance secretary, seems to be doing an okay job. But indeed, it is, uh, I mean, Philippines has had the most stringent and longest lockdown in Southeast Asia, and still it's, it's out of control. So that is, uh, again, you see a very weak uh, health ministry that's not able to implement effective policies uh, around the country. Right. Um, and uh, I, I would like to draw a parallel between both Indonesia and Philippines on the issue of leadership again. Um, do you see tendencies in both of these countries towards centralizing control in response to the pandemic? I mean, there have been attempts, but the ability to do that is uh, is uh, is limited because the power of the central government, uh, its effectiveness around the, around these big archipelagos is just quite limited. Absolutely, um, my, my my worry in my spectrum of worry charts. Uh, I mean, Philippines remains number one, uh, and uh, although I see some parallels between Indonesia and Philippines, and at least on the stringency side, I would score Philippines higher. I still seem to find easier to be constructive about Indonesia's outlook than Philippines's outlook for the near term. Yeah, um, yeah maybe I, uh, I I agree with that. I also think that that uh, the situation in the Philippines looks more dire than. Than in uh, than Indonesia. Indonesia is a bit is always chaotic. It's a very weak. If we have a weak interagency process, but the likelihood that they will get it faster under control than the Philippines is very high. I would say. Right. So let's talk about a couple of countries where the pandemic has been dealt with with some degree of success. Uh, first, Thailand, which yeah. for a while seemed like you know absolutely the gold standard and and despite not taking very tough stringency measures they seem to have dealt with the infection pretty well and now i'm reading about again some out-of-the-box solutions that are coming up from the government in terms of offering tourists long-term visas uh, to come and mm. stay there for like seven eight ten weeks and then they can just you know be allowed to come with the quarantine measures in place uh, so one sort of question is you know what's your sense of the pandemic response but I guess the bigger question is the ongoing political tension where, again, we have yeah. headline-grabbing events almost on a daily basis out of Thailand. So in terms of the pandemic, uh, Thailand has been lucky. Very few cases. And they also effectively, they, they closed the borders early. But the real crisis is indeed, as you said, political, where, we, where we've, we've, we've had a military government since the coup in 2014, but it seems to be a government actually running out of ideas. And we see now a new generation of, of students suddenly organizing demonstrations and, and, and demanding a free elections, a change to the constitution, and even, even of all taboos, reform of the, uh, of the monarchy. And we have seen these sort of protests not really amount to much in the past. Is this more of the same? No, this is very new. Uh, this is very new. This is uh, young people, young leaders, students, not tied to any political party, except perhaps a future forward, the, the party that was banned or disbanded uh, 
after the last elections. This, this is very, very new. And, and, and for the first time, they also, as I said, demand reforms of, uh, of the monarchy, something that would have been unthinkable under the previous king, Bumibol, but under the current king, uh, who lives in, uh, in Bavaria, uh, of all places, and and seems to seems to have been been building so much power in the sense that it almost looked like re-establishing an absolute monarchy, and he seems to feel that the prime minister is accountable to him. I mean, this looks like almost like going back to the Middle Ages. I think this all this this is a toxic mix. Uh, of military government, lack of political economic opportunities, and then this this behavior by the by the monarchy, by the monarch, I would say, that has led to these uh, these demands. And in the middle of these demands, uh, last week the king announced that his uh, his royal consort has been reinstated, and that clearly shows you where his, his priorities lie. Absolutely. Hans, help me out here. I mean, in this region, we don't have too many. I mean, we have purchasing manager surveys where we can tell that, you know, it is 51 in this country and 49 in another country. But are there surveys, perhaps maybe done by your firm, where we can compare the mood of the population in Thailand versus Indonesia versus Vietnam? Because the reason I ask you is that I also, like you, look at the headlines out of Thailand and it does feel that it is different from normal times. But is there a survey-based way for us to gauge that? No, it's very difficult. I mean, but I mean, but we saw of what we saw at the last elections in uh, in Thailand is the we saw how well this new political party, Future Forward, uh, did. So they clearly have uh, have quite wide wide appeal. And by the way, and the the ideas of these students, I mean, are not so radical. We accept the monarchy, perhaps in Thailand, but even that's not very not very radical if you if you look outside Thailand. So maybe it's difficult to say how wide how wide the appeal is, but we, but in itself, the fact that people get tired of a military regime and want greater accountability and a say in their future, I think that is all not so surprising. No, not at all. Uh, and uh, we will sort of have to keep tracking this uh, because if it is indeed not your normal cycle of protest followed by one more government, then of course Thailand would be commanding quite a few headlines next year. Uh, the other bright spot in the region, Hans, has been Vietnam. Uh, very low levels of outbreak. They had a bit of a scare a few weeks ago, but it seems to have brought that into under control as well. And additionally, independent of the pandemic, Vietnam is the story in terms of drawing uh, the low-end manufacturing from China. And I I remember right before the pandemic in January, the the Davos uh, World Economic Forum, the Vietnamese were pitching themselves as the China light option. Um, So help us sort of think about both of those, that uh, Vietnam's success in this China-US strife, as well as the uh, success with the low levels of outbreak. So... Vietnam acted very fast. I mean, it had experience with, uh, with SARS. It also, it also really didn't believe what the Chinese leadership was saying about COVID. And it, uh, it's, uh, it acted fast and, and decisively. And, and it, as a result of that, I mean, life went back to normal surprisingly fast, even so fast that in the second half of May, there were more domestic flights in, in, in Vietnam 
this year than last year. And uh, nobody was wearing masks anymore, no social distancing, everything back to normal. That was shattered to some extent by an outbreak in Da Nang. Uh, by the way, nobody really knows where this was coming from. Allegedly, people suspect that people came in from China illegally, but this is not proven. But fortunately, that has been brought under control. And uh, I think life is back to normal again, at least domestically. But China, so Vietnam is going through, I mean, a lot of, quite a lot of change because we will have a, a big party uh, conference uh, early, uh, early next year. There's also a change in generational change in leadership. And uh, at the same time, we have seen, as you said, that Vietnam has been very successful in attracting investments, companies that have, have left or have been moving factories from China. By, by, by the way, these are sometimes also Chinese uh, who have moved their factories outside China as a way perhaps also to circumvent U.S. trade sanctions. And so Vietnam has been very successful at, at this. And I think that is, uh, by the way, and the party needs that because the party needs high economic growth to show how competent uh, it is. And by the way, high economic growth will not be achieved this year, but at least they are, they, they, at least we will have some economic growth, probably around 2%. That's right. So when we forecast uh, for 2020, our you know, sort of Asia-wide growth outlook, the only two countries with positive growth that we have are Vietnam and China. Um, yeah. but, uh, but Hans, one question about Vietnam, and again, this is independent of the pandemic issue, is that what is Vietnam's remaining absorptive capacity with respect to FDI and so on? I mean, you cannot really be a sizable substitute to China simply because you're not in any measurable way large enough or have infrastructure to match that. So at one point, do we see investors sort of trying to find Vietnam's alternative because the country is pretty much, you know, taken up its capacity and wages are beginning to go up or infrastructure is getting stretched. Yeah, I mean, at some point, absolutely, we will get there. But the good news is uh, it doesn't look like we are there yet. So Vietnam will be able to keep on, uh, keep on uh, absorbing more factories. But you're right, this can't go on indefinitely. That's right. Um, and to sort of fly back from Vietnam closer to Singapore, because I realized that I neglected discussing Malaysia with you. Uh, talk about political drama. <laughs> There's no end to that there. Uh, and of course, yeah. we also have, in addition to uh, collapse in tourism, energy prices, of course, hurt Malaysia tremendously, being a very large exporter of energy. Um, so is, is, is there a way we can sort of put the two issues separated, the economic crisis from the power struggle, or are they compounding each other uh, or is it the case that if Malaysia was doing just fine, would still have this power struggle? I think it will still have this power struggle. You like me to talk about the power struggle for a moment? Sure. Yeah, probably for the first time that the prime minister staged the coup against himself and it failed. Uh, but Mahathir is now out of power. We have uh, a new prime minister, but it also means it's the end also in Malaysia of an era, the era of, uh, of Barazan uh, Nacional, the, the coalition uh, put together by uh, the governing, uh, the majority Malay party, uh, UMNO, and uh, the opposition 
Pakatan Harapan may be out for the moment, but I think we've seen a major shift opening up the political system as a, as a result. And, and we have to see how what kind of realignment there will be. But this is a, this is a big change in, uh, in Malaysia. And it's difficult to see that we would go back to a stable, stable uh, UMNO, Barasa National governments. We'll see shifting alliances, uh, quite a lot of um, instability. We really don't know uh, who will be prime minister in two months. I thought even three months ago that we'll probably have a change in leadership by now. Uh, Mr. Mohyuddin has yeah. held on pretty well. Uh, surpassing at least my expectation. But uh, the business as usual, which was that you have large hegemonic parties with patronage, maintain their hold on the fairly you know, diverse federal system that Malaysia is with all the different states with yep. their autonomy and their um, uh, own sort of idiosyncrasies. Um, so, I mean, surely it is beyond the scope of this podcast to sort of unpack all of those complexities for Malaysia. But by and large, is there recognition that the economic model is broken or is it just the focus now on who gets to be the prime minister tomorrow uh, and dealing with the pandemic or dealing with all the structural problems that Malaysia has in terms of lack of competitiveness and inefficiencies and the very large footprint of state-owned enterprises? Are all those things for the time being in the back burner? I don't think so. I, I think there's no full realization that that model uh, model has broken. Actually, we'll see the current prime minister very much continuing that, and we have to see how long that is that can go on. Actually, we saw the uh, the Pakatan Arab on the previous coalition. They were really trying to fundamentally reform that, uh, but then they then they lost power sort of uh, halfway, not even halfway. But, but I think you're right. It is not clear that this old model is really, uh, really sustainable. And, and we saw the, the excesses of it in the one MDB uh, scandal. I think Indonesia, sorry, Malaysia rather, it's really, really in flux. When um, Mahathir Mohamad uh, became Prime Minister yet again, uh, I found his message on China rather confusing. Uh, for a while, it seemed like you know, he was going to take a tough line on China, on certain projects. He wanted to renegotiate because Malaysia's fiscal capacity was limited. Now, with him sort of moving on, um, perhaps not indefinitely, but at least for the time being, um, how is the China-Malaysia dynamic panning out? So I think the, the focus was for him was really to twofold to uh, to renegotiate these big contracts, uh, infrastructure contracts, uh, to get a somewhat lower price, and and to change to basically kick out the the Najib uh, affiliated companies and replace them with Mahathir uh, loyalists. But beyond that, we, have, we haven't seen a fundamental change in the attitude vis-à-vis -vis China. That's right. And I, I keep wondering that whether the call for re-examining relationship with China was more of a political issue that, you know, anything that was done under Najib will have to reopen because we might find some Pandora's box. Or was it really a strategic worldview that Malaysia has sort of gravitated too close to China 
uh, perhaps given the state of Malaysia's politics, it was more transactional than anything else. Um, Hans, the Malaysia-Singapore relationship, I mean, when we sort of, you know, drive to Malaysia, we always see at any given day, thousands of people from Malaysia coming to Singapore for work. A uh, yeah. lot of the Singaporean supply chain is embedded into the northern side of the border. What is your view on the future of Singapore-Malaysia relationship? It's a symbiotic relationship. Malaysians need, need to work and uh, Singapore needs the workers. So they will have to find a way to bring them back. And that's exactly what they are doing right now. And that's why they are, that's why they have been quite accommodating and see them coming back while at the same time trying to mitigate the risks that it would lead to a sharp increase in the COVID-19 uh, cases. Sure. Um, Hans, no discussion on ASEAN these days can be complete without discussing the overarching role of China uh, into the region's economy, uh, investment, security, and so on. So perhaps you can help us sort of bring it all together. I have two broad questions for you. So how is China looking at ASEAN? And secondly, is there an ASEAN position vis-a-vis -vis China or every single country is doing its own thing? Well, that's, that's not so easy to answer, but it looks like uh, it is more uh, looking at, at Southeast Asia, at the different uh, member states. And if, if, I mean, if, if you look at China, Chinese behavior vis-a-vis uh, many countries in Southeast Asia. It seems to feel like uh, nations in Southeast Asia, they need to know their place again and almost behave like uh, tribute states to uh, to China. ASEAN really, I mean, it, it doesn't really have a, a common position vis-a-vis -vis China. I think that's exactly the weakness. It's every, it's every member state for itself. And that makes it uh, quite easy for China to play one uh, over against the other. But I could also argue that in some areas, most ASEAN economies are on the same page, as in nobody wants to move away from their trade relationship vis-a-vis -vis China. At the same time, nobody wants to be forced to pick a side, maybe one or two small ASEAN countries notwithstanding. I remember General Hu from Indonesia once saying at a conference just a couple of years ago that uh, neither the US nor the Chi Chinese should be putting Indonesia in a position to choose. And I've heard similar words uh, right. in various combination being uttered by various other ASEAN leaders. So maybe ASEAN secretariat and ASEAN meetings do not come up with a communicate that is very coherent or makes sense. But do you see that there is risk of fracture within ASEAN because of China? I mean, it depends who, how, 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 how would you define fracture? Uh, I suppose, you know, we saw some hints of that a few years ago when Cambodia got in the way of a consensus-based communique being issued. Could we go further than that? Uh, where I, don't, I think, uh, I'm not sure. I think uh, even Cambodia realized after that it had made a bit of a mistake. So, but what is very clear is that all, nearly all countries uh, in Southeast Asia, just like Singapore, don't really want to choose between its, their biggest trading partner, China, and, and, and the US. So I think they will, they will keep on playing uh, both off against each other. I think that can go on for, um, for a long time. And actually the paradox is, is that 
that the aggressiveness of China, especially in the South China Sea against Vietnam, against the Philippines, like now against even Malaysia and Indonesia, actually makes these countries aware of the risks uh, involved. So on the one hand, they may have been welcoming Chinese investments, but at the same time, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to deal with a possible deadly embrace by, uh, by China. Uh, so Hans, uh, final point, um, when people are asked you to do crystal ball gazing and you have to give them like a 2021 view, what is the 2021 view you're giving to your clients for ASEAN? So, so we mean ASEAN, we mean Southeast Asia or the organization? No, no Southeast Asia. I, I didn't mean ASEAN as an organization. <laughs> <laughs> you mean for 2021? That's right. Wow. I mean, a, a lot. A lot depends on how. Uh, I mean, I don't want to duck the question, but a lot depends on how COVID is playing out. And uh, I mean, Myanmar so far has largely escaped. Largely escaped it, but uh, this has changed certainly in the last uh, last week to two weeks. So, if the countries will be able to open up, I think we will go back to normal. Uh, but as we discussed earlier, that may still take uh, quite a bit of time in Indonesia and, and the Philippines. And we just have to hope for uh, this fast test we discussed earlier as soon as possible. So we, uh, we can open up and we can uh, get the economies all uh, moving again. Yes, that is the big hope. Uh, I suppose on the trade side, we already have some hope that uh, even with China picking up, the Chinese demand and hopefully regional demand alone would be able to get the ball rolling. And if the Americans and the Europeans can get their act together, uh, hopefully next year we do have a much better time. Well, Hans, I mean, from an arithmetic perspective, of course, we'll see better numbers next year. But from a level perspective, 2021 might be just a year where we begin to recover and try to recoup for all the big losses of 2020. Uh, Hans, this has been a great sort of sweep of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, very few people that I know can sort of hold our hand through all these countries with very disparate uh, governmental structure and outlook and political idiosyncrasies. So I thank you very much for your time. Most welcome. Uh, welcome to me. But, but beside next year, I think perhaps even more important, if we look at the next couple of years, I mean, we deal with a relatively open region, which still has a lot of potential for, for economic growth. And I'm sure that's also going to happen. Yes. I mean, how can it not? I mean, when you look at demographics, when you look at average tariff in the region, when you look at the pull from India and China, two of the fastest growing country, uh, regions in the world, I mean, I think that, you know, ASEAN is in a, or Southeast Asia is in a pretty decent spot in a world where there are not that many decent spots. Uh, so on that fairly optimistic note, I'll, I'll end the podcast and I'll thank our listeners for listening in. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It's for information only and does not represent any trade recommendation. All 27 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Group Research Library. Have a great day. <laughs>